Today, it's Extreme Composites with photo composer Richard Horowitz on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel. As always, the show notes for the show that you're about to watch and every show that I do are at the website at BehindTheShot.tv as well. If you happen to be watching on YouTube, if you head down below the like button, you'll find show notes down there as well. It's not as extensive on the website. I actually write something about my guest and I have a small gallery of photos to show you more of what they, they shoot. But all the links are either on YouTube or on the website. And today I want to jump right into my guest because this is the second time that we've recorded this or tried to record this. And I am so excited to talk to Richard Horowitz, an International Photography Hall of Fame inductee. Richard, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. It is it is so wonderful to see you again. I mentioned in the beginning that we have done this once before, and I'm actually going to, for those that are that are watching, you're going to see something strange here. You're going to watch the the uh, food be made. I'm going to slide him over just a little bit. Um, we did this once before, the internet being what it is, it didn't cooperate. And so we're doing it again. And I'm so excited to have you on because there's a lot that I want to talk about with you. And I want to start with the way I did the introduction. So I said it's Extreme Composites with photo composer, Richard Horowitz. Photo composer is, is a term you call yourself and I have to say, I love the the mental thought that that invokes in my mind when I say photo composer. Explain where that came from. Well, it came to my mind by uh, comparing my work to what a uh, music composer does, that is uh, collecting uh, alien sounds into a uh, seamless harmony. And I like to see my images do exactly the same thing. That is taking pictures taken frequently at different places on the earth, coming from different countries, taken under different circumstances, mixing outdoor photography with studio photography, everything in a seamless manner. So uh, the final result appears to be as one. And in my mind, it retains its, what I like to call photographic quality, as opposed to being a collage or a cutout. Right. In fact, your composites, I would argue, they look as, they look organic. They look as though they were shot as a single shot, the way that you compose them. And you do actually, I, I should mention, we there is a book, Photo Composer. Uh, from 2009. I will have a link to that book in the show notes so that everybody knows. But again, you said something I want to take kind of a, a, a detour down. You said you take pictures, you like to take pictures like a composer, assembling these, these uh, unique individual sounds and voices, as it were, from taken around the world and assembling those into one composition. And just a really interesting approach to what you do but the first thought that hits me is, especially since a lot of your work was done analog, some of it analog and in the darkroom, some of it shot analog, scanned and done digitally, as with the shot that we're going to talk about today, some of it all digitally. It brings to mind lighting nightmares. Like if you're shooting shot A, we'll call it, in Krakow, Poland, and you're shooting shot B in Manhattan, 
and they're at different times of days under different circumstances. And you're doing this analog where you may not have control over the light. And yet when you assemble them, your light matches. Well, uh, you are being extremely perceptive. I appreciate it. One of the biggest problems I find looking at uh, many composites, it's that they do not match lighting and they do not match perspective. And when I do my stuff, you know, I bear it all in mind and I try to, whatever degree I have control over it, match the lighting. If I am um, basing my composition on an outdoor, uh, on a landscape, let's say, that has a directed, directed uh, or very direct rather, light source, when later on I prepare my uh, studio shots, I light them likely, you know, that is retaining the same, uh, not light source, but direction of the light. And as far as the coloration is concerned, this is something that we can, you know, control in post-production. That's what that was. I literally was chomping at the bit to say, yes, direction's fine, but you have color of light changes. So then mm -hmm. in what you do, correct me if I'm wrong here, this is my brain thinking out loud, shooting the outside shots or, or sourcing those outside shots, probably it's best to have those before going in the studio where you do have control. Do you ever end up the opposite where you have a studio shot and you're outside trying to match that? Yes, yes. But, you know, but unless you uh, deal with uh, very kind of uh, direct light source, uh, very precise and and uh, like almost overwhelming light source in, in nature. Uh, it's something that, you know, that uh, does not happen that frequently in my work because being uh, aware of it, I do not shoot in full sun. Okay. I do not shoot. I try to find a situation where light is uh, a little bit more diffused. That is shooting so, very early in the morning or, or at, at dusk. It, it just so comes across in your work. I mean, it's the first thing that hit me as I went through your website, which by the way, folks, as we're talking, Richard's website, his his uh, URL is coming up on the screen or the link is in the blog post at behindtheshot.tv or below on YouTube. But as I, I lost hours going through your website, partially because of the music stuff. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I lost hours going through both your analog and your digital portfolios because of just that. You've got such crazy uh, composites and effects and things that you're doing, and yet the direction and color of light. And, and I would argue, just as importantly, obviously, the, the assembly of these individual parts, right, is done in such a way that you would almost think, did they build this and shoot it as one shot? That's... That, that's how it appears as you go through almost every shot. I want to go back early because there's a question I have for you again, looking at your portfolio. You were born in Krakow, Poland, and you were born four months before the Nazi invasion. In fact, you're the one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. You were actually on Schindler's List and you were in the movie Schindler's List. And I could have a conversation with you on that for hours, probably. <laughs> but... I want to bring it into what we're talking about today. Connecting those dots, 
we all bring, at least I find, we all bring our life with us through the lens, right? Our life experience, it doesn't matter if you're a judge in a courtroom, if you're a teacher in a classroom or a photographer, your life colors, your perception, your interpretation, and pretty much everything that you do. So did or does your early life color and come through in your art? And if so, how? Well, if you ask me, I tell you it doesn't, although most likely I lie. But if you <laughs> ask psychiatrists, you know, people I spoke to in the past, they always and desperately dig into my pictures and find some kind of twist, some kind of uh, disturbance that in their judgment is a pure reflection of my childhood experience. You see, uh, I try to keep a much more positive, positive and uh, uplifting attitude toward people and toward life. And I'd like to dwell in very obscure, very damning and dark sides of life. I mean, there's enough of it around us. There are wars, there are people killing each other, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't have to kind of expose it or, 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 uh, uh, you know, dwell upon. Um, I like to see myself as a person with certain, you know, bag on my shoulder who's trying to overcome it, overcome it and function in spite of it. And sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm less successful, but my work has certain whimsical quality. And uh, I like to see it as uh, humorous rather than damning. Well, and okay, so you touched on so much I want to touch into there. First of all, the whimsical quality is an interesting phrasing for your work and very accurate, actually. But the other thing is, and I have this conversation with my wife often, and that is I believe inherently the human condition is good, right? I believe inherently most humans will almost always do the right thing. But it's interesting, as you were describing, people go into my pictures and they seem to want to try and find, and if you look for something, you'll find it, whether it's there or not. As you were describing people finding stuff in your pictures that may or may not be true, the first thought that hit me was the Beatles, where people found stuff in album cover photos. Oh, that means, you know, Paul must have died because he's got a black rose or he's barefoot and, and people will find what they want. You, you, there was one thing in your youth that I found fascinating. The, the well-known director, Roman Polanski, you grew up with. And there is a documentary, uh, Polanski Horror, It's Hometown, which... I saw it named somewhere else, the Wizards of the Ghetto. But according to Wikipedia, I, I have to know if this is true. You created your first photographic enlarger from cardboard with Roman Polanski. <laughs> yes, my first darkroom was in uh, our bathroom. And uh, we're talking about uh, early 50s. Uh, uh, communist Poland were virtually... Uh, no photographing equipment was available. Sometimes things would kind of uh, sneak in through uh, from East Germany. Uh, we didn't have good film available, uh, very limited amount of cameras, and uh, there was no uh, Photoshop, you know, to buy like the latest Omega and larger. So we have to sort of like improvise, and we uh, took under consideration the principle 
out in larger work, and there is some kind of, you know, container with a light source inside of it and a lens. And we kind of improvise and build this thing and uh, using all kinds of shortcuts, uh, not being able to uh, buy any uh, uh, prepare chemistry, for instance, we had to go to a drugstore or buy chemicals and mix developers and fixers and all this stuff, you know, by ourselves. So it's a great path, you know, to learn uh, not only how to, but how things work that later on became uh, very beneficial in my professional work. So I have absolutely no regret that I went through this hell and I had to, you know, improvise so much, but it was a good training, believe me. Do you still keep in touch with Mr. Polanski? Yes, yes, I do, yes. Okay. Um, I want to get into the special effects that you do because you are, or you have been referred to, and I would refer to you as a pioneer of special effects photography. And our mutual friend, Lou, kind of summed it up in a quote that he sent when he sent an email introducing us. And I, I want to read what Lou wrote. His photographs are as beautiful as they are compelling and thoughtful, and his amazing special effects date back before digital and Photoshop. Again, you do what I call extreme composites or analog, extreme analog composites, like the image we're going to talk about today. Where did that come from in you? Uh, and and let, me, let me clarify that. Creatives come in so many different forms, Right. Today, we call almost anybody who does something creative, a YouTuber, a photographer of any level, an iPhone photographer, a director, a musician that's in a local band, we call them creatives. But then you have that level of creativity and creative that I think is above the norm. I don't think it can be taught. I think it's it, it's an... It's a natural talent that can be nurtured and practiced and exercised. And I'd argue you're in that category where you've got this amazing natural vision that like in today's world, people would call me in the creative space, but almost every other photographer on the planet is more creative than I am, but I'm a creative, <laughs> right? Come you on. on the other hand are the dictionary definition of a creative. Do you see that vision as being inherent in your 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 makeup, or where did it come well, from? <laughs> Most likely, I was born with certain uh, fantasy-like uh, approach to uh, not just photography, but maybe life in general. And uh, I simply, almost from the beginning, uh, was not fascinated in taking photographs, but making photographs. I like to sort of uh, uh, put things together. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a great admirer of photographers who think the opposite. I have great friends who are uh, phenomenal war photographers or photojournalists or whatever. Uh, I simply chose myself this approach. And also, you should uh, remember that I was trained as a painter, and my inspiration came mostly from uh, uh, high art, from painting. And uh, I learned everything I wanted to learn about photography, you know, analyzing uh, work of the masters 
and I'm so totally self-thought. I, I never studied photography as such, but I did study drawing and painting. And Your degree the, was in drawing and painting, correct? Yes, and it all you know became you know extremely useful later on in my in my professional life. So. Yeah, you have, looking through your website, you have a list of awards and exhibitions in your bio that is unending. You are so accomplished, former Canon Explorer of Light, you're now what's called a, a Canon Legends member. You were named All-American Photographer of the Year. I mentioned International Photography Hall of Fame inductee. And with all that you do with your you're really a more, I'm going to call it extreme, although it's just super creative composite, both analog and digital. I'm browsing through your website and I come across your jazz image collection. Now I am a music photographer. It is almost all I photograph is concerts, live music. You have photos and I'm a jazz fan from way back. I spent three years in Detroit and was friends with some amazing jazz musicians and used to go to clubs where, you know, George Benson or Earl Klug would be playing. You have photographs of Dave Brubeck, uh, Aretha, Duke Ellington, Thelonious Monk, Count Basie, Louis Armstrong. Um, I have a link actually to all that jazz. It's in the show notes. Looking at at those two categories for you is a disconnect for me because I see your brain working in this composite world. And then I go browsing through these amazing black and white photographs. Where to you is the overlap when you're looking through a lens? Well, all that I do is, uh, inevitably part of me i mean uh ever since i was a little kid i was absolutely in love with jazz i uh, jazz was uh, forbidden music under communism so we're listening to you know to uh, american radio station called uh, jazz hour uh, that was uh mc by a great guy uh named willis canover he knew that he was sending his programs to uh, countries uh, populated by people who didn't speak any English. So his pronunciation was very slow, uh, very silky. And later, uh, when I was in New York already, I, I was very fortunate to meet with him and tell him this in person. But uh, we, listened, we listened to music and I grew up with uh, people who later on became uh, great jazz musicians in Poland. And when I arrived in New York and I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, I used to spend all my money getting on a train, on the subway, GG train to Manhattan and visit uh, some of the greatest uh, jazz clubs that existed at the time. And fortunately, I caught on the end of all those geniuses of jazz who were very much alive at the time, and I was able to uh, listen to them, to touch them, and uh, eventually, you know, I was very lucky to uh, uh, meet Dave Brubeck, who was uh, oh. my great inspiration. I visited him in his uh, Connecticut villa several times, and when I had the idea of doing my book, I sort of asking 
and not expecting uh, too much of an answer, uh, if he would be kind enough to write an introduction to my book. And he said, but of course, of course I do it, you know. And he loved very much pictures they took of him uh, many years before, earlier. And uh, I met a lot of jazz musicians, as a matter of fact. And uh, this is also part of my life, you know. I mean, these pictures are different because it's a different subject matter. I would not want to, you know, photocompose uh, uh, jazz pictures, although I could, but I didn't feel it was necessary. I just wanted to capture a moment uh, that I felt very uh, uh, much part of it. And uh, even, you know, uh, not only Brubeck, but also a very famous uh, uh, jazz critic, uh, not Hantoff, who is not who does anymore. Uh, when he got the book, he, he thought that uh, they were very, very warm and that were, uh, swinging. I mean, I couldn't get you no know, better interpretation. Uh, also, also Quincy Jones got my book and he loved it. And he said that only a crazy European, you know, could feature and uh, uh, project jazz the way, you know, the way uh, you did uh, with all this, you know, uh, love and, and passion. So, and yes, I mean, they're part of me and I'm happy uh, to still have those photographs that I discovered by, you know, by accident. I was moving from one studio to another and I found this cardboard box full of negatives that I totally forgot about. And I began to, you know, to look through them and eventually scan them and clean them and prepared a presentation that I showed to Brubing among other people who made it possible for the book to come out. And, and again, the book is All That Jazz from 2012. And I've got a link for that in the show notes. Dave Brubeck Quartet, if, if you guys are not jazz listeners, go look up Dave Brubeck Quartet. Uh, you'll get hooked very, very quickly. Uh, take five. Take five. Yeah, take exactly. Um, <laughs> which is the album title. Um, so again, photographing what I photograph and being a fan of jazz, uh, just absolutely amazing. So before we get into today's shot, a couple of quick notes. First of all, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts in either a video format if your podcast uh, you know, source of choice supports video or there is an audio only feed. You can find all the links to subscribe wherever it is available at the website, which is behindtheshot.tv. And of course, if you're watching on YouTube, that works as well. If you want to do video uh, from YouTube instead of a podcast app, head on over to the Behind the Shot channel on YouTube and right down below the like button, you've got all the links and everything for Richard there as well. And while you're there, please do subscribe, hit the like button and uh, any comments are, are, are welcome there as well. So one last thing I want to mention is I want to thank my friends over at DVE Store, DVE Store uh, for the high def video. Visit DVEstore.com for all your digital video equipment needs. And that brings us up to today's image. So today's image, before I put it up on the screen, Richard and I were going back and forth picking an image. I'm browsing through his website trying to pick one as well. And this image absolutely leaped off the screen at me. I, I believe the name of this is Allegory. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. So this image, I'm going to describe it for the audio people here in just a second. But first of all, let's start here. 
this was all shot. Each of these images was shot analog, assembled digitally. We'll get into that detail in a minute here. But what body did you shoot this with? Well, I shot, you know, most of the stuff I shot was the Canon. I mean, the analog Canon, I mean, the background. Uh, the keyboard I shot with a larger camera because I needed the uh, um, the look of it. And uh, uh, so it's a mixture of different cameras. Something, you know, that I uh, very frequently, you know, take advantage of. I was never really, to be honest with you, married to a single camera or into a single, single optics. In the past, you know, when uh, I was composing things in camera or in the darkroom, uh, it was necessary to shoot all the individual elements in the proper uh size relationship to each other, the way they were going to be composed afterwards. So subsequently, rather than enlarging pieces of film, I would shoot them with larger, small, smaller uh, pieces of film, depending on, on my needs. So uh, right now, it's not necessary. Right now, you can shoot with a single body and uh, use very limited uh, amount of uh, optics uh, because, I mean, everything you can accomplish afterwards in the post-production. But to think that you shot all of this analog, let me, for those of you that are on the audio feed, again, you can get the show in audio uh, only format if you're like on, uh, uh, you know, Spotify or Amazon Music or something like that. If you're in Apple Podcasts, there's an audio only or a video feed. But for those of you listening on audio, which a lot of people do while they drive, Please don't watch the video while you're driving. That would probably be a smart move. Let me try and explain this to you. And I don't know, like I say, it's hard every show that I do. I don't know how well I can describe this shot because I don't think any verbal description will do this shot justice, but I'm going to try. This is an extremely complex composite. It's surrealistic. Think in your head, think Dali. Um, it's that kind of, you know, disparate pieces put together in a way that they all work. And there is a behind the scenes video of how this was made. I will have a link to that in the show notes as well. And you should go watch that. I think it's 10 minutes or something like that video so that you get an idea of, you know, how this was actually photographed because it's. Some of the stuff that Richard does, I mean, just trying to get the water tank into the building took five <laughs> minutes of the video, and it was hilarious when they pulled out saws. Anyway, long story. So here's the deal. This was shot analog, and I'm going to start at the top of the image, and I'm going to kind of jump around on purpose. Top of the image, you've got beautiful sky, beautiful clouds. Richard mentioned earlier people miss perspective a lot. The perspective here is dead on the the angle of the clouds the color variant of the clouds from closer to you versus farther away the sharpness of the clouds from closer to you to farther away at the bottom there is a beach scene with rocks and white water rolling up on the beach and now if i stopped there you would think this was an outdoor beach scene with sky and with water and there's a horizon somewhere in the middle but that's where you would be wrong because in the middle of this image is a an all caps large like it's not just I'm not going to say it's a large 
warped, distorted set of piano keys. It, when you say the word large here, it's all caps. It is a giant set of warped and distorted and ballooning piano keys. The, the keys are bursting out of the water. There's bubbles coming off of them as they burst out of the water. They're breaking through the water and splitting apart. And in the gap where the keys split apart is a, I think it's a cello, but it could be a violin. Violin, it's a violin. Okay, violin, the, the head of a violin coming through the keys and the violin going back. And here's where it's interesting is there's something on the violin. On the violin are two dancers, a male holding up a female. The female is holding two ropes. And it's almost as though she is the, the, the mast or the, the front piece of a ship. And she's holding two ropes, which are in turn holding sheet music. And the sheet music is a sail. It's, it's, she's like a masthead. And across the sides of the keys, there's fog in all of this that kind of brings that horizon that's on the left and right of the keys into the picture naturally. This is so beautiful. It is so complex. And again, this is shot analog, scanned and assembled digitally. Did I miss anything? No, I mean, I could <laughs> drop in a few more detail about where the pictures came from, et cetera, et cetera, but we can uh, skip it over or leave it for later, however you want uh, to I, I've got it. I actually have a shot of the individual images I'll bring up here in just a minute. Okay. First of all, here's sure. what I want to know. If you were to describe the technique that you used here, right, shot in anal analog, ed edited digitally, you, again, you managed to, to sync up the light color and the light angle. You managed to unify the colors of everything together. Explain to me the overview of making this shot. Well, first I uh, had to uh, come up with a concept, with an idea, and uh, uh, I made some sketches. Uh, and then later on, no, this is not my sketch. This, as a matter of fact, is a sketch that I got from people from Kodak. This picture, by the way, I did an assignment for, for Kodak, Eastman Kodak. So this, because there are parts. So for those of you on audio, I just pulled up a black and white, almost wireframe look. And there are pieces in this that appear to be from that shot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things such as the keyboard and the people. Yes, but the uh, sketch is uh, much more complex and uh, a little bit, you know, uh, convoluted, if you will. But um, we had to have something to, to, to start with. You know, we had to agree on, on basically what elements we're going to, you know, to uh, use and utilize in the, uh, in the composition, as I said, called allegory. Uh, again, we're trying to create an image that would use uh, music or musical elements to sort of uh, uh, back up the, the, the idea that I uh, had expressed before, and that is what photographic position meant to me. And um, I should also mention that uh, at the time I was dealing with a wonderful uh, man was a pioneer of uh, 
digital imaging and special effects. His name is uh, Bob Greenberg. He had a uh, still has a uh, huge company um, in Manhattan uh, creating uh, special effects. Now it's all digital, before it was all analog. And he became familiar with my work and he felt that I was the right person you know, to really direct and shoot this kind of composition. And he introduced me to Kodak and that's how the whole thing started. You know, It was a uh, very involved and time consuming uh, uh, situation because up to that moment, apparently nobody had put together such a complex composition and people were a little bit scared, you know. Uh, I was, I would lie, I told you, I wasn't <laughs> initially scared how this thing would uh, work out. But uh, the most important thing for me was to have a uh, very solid idea in my head and uh, know exactly what I'm looking for. Because so you cannot improvise too much. You cannot kind of, you know, touch, you know, a lot of things and try to sort of sort them together. They may or may not work. I mean, they had to work. So it's effectively a script. And again, people, you got to go watch the video because so for the keyboard and, and in the video, you see Richard setting up the keyboard and doing the fog and getting ready to photograph it. But they had to get a water tank in the building, which Explain that I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to share it. I want you to okay, do it. No, it Explain was very, what was, happened with the water tank. It was very funny. It said at the same time, what happened here was that um, uh, I had at the time I had a uh, street level studio with a fairly large entrance for a car to drive into. Well, people who actually uh, were uh, assigned to build a special tank on a uh, platform and wheels. They uh, unpacked it in front of the studio. And it turned out that the frame of the tank was too wide that they could not <laughs> roll it into my studio. So they had to quickly figure out a way. So they started using torches and cutting all this metal frame and spending hours putting this whole thing together. And eventually they rolled it in. And then I worked with a wonderful uh, prop maker who uh, built for me a special uh, so like a uh, arm, nomadic arm that was pushing the keyboard. It was a portion of keyboard only. And the keyboard was pushed from the above the tank into the water. And I photographed it through the water upside down. So uh, the air that the uh, keyboard was dragging in to the tank created all these marvelous bubbles. And I was very much con conscious of uh, so-called synthetic bubbles, and I wanted to avoid them. I wanted them to be like lifelike. And also, each frame that I took, and I took a lot of pictures, had different, you know, uh, bubble formations. So I could pick and choose whatever, you know, whatever I like. And then later on, you know, uh, the keyboard was uh, slightly distorted, and. Uh, I prepared, you know, for this thing, you you have the picture over there, sort of a layout that actually it's a bunch of uh, Xerox copies of um, of individual uh, frames. And I cut them out, this thing, and I put them together. That just to give an idea to the people who are scanning the images, how to uh, position them and how to scale them. 
because once we had them in the computer, it would be too complex and too time consuming to start rotating them and, and moving them around. This thing, by the way, was put together before even Photoshop existed. So you can appreciate the fact that it took a lot of time and a lot of pre-thinking, you know, how to put it all together, how to make this thing work. So this image that's up in front of us right now is at quick glance, it's the image we're talking about, but it's not. It's multiple pieces. And so this was photos that you Xeroxed and then you stitched or taped those Xeroxes together here? Right. Correct. So so here are, by the way, the individual shots. Oh, yeah. Here individual. You have the landscape that consists of two pictures. The sky was taken in Cusco, in Cusco, Peru. The beach comes from uh, outside of San Francisco, it's the Pacific. You have the violin that I photograph, you know, uh, swimming, you know, uh, in the tank with smoke around it. And then you have the, the mass, you have the two dancers who are from a very famous uh, dance group called Philobolus. I don't know if you're familiar with it. There were dancers from, uh, that initially came from Dartmouth College in, uh, uh, and they uh, specialize in these incredible uh, body contortions and and and, and uh, kind of putting bodies together creating you know, phenomenal shapes and it was all down to music and into many of their performances I don't know if they're still around but anyway I had this fantasy of using them because I wanted to create a very interesting shape for the mast which so, which it worked with the sheet music so you know that's right and the sheet music was um, a piece of score uh, by Mozart that I had silk screen on a on a large piece of uh, silk, and uh, and then you have the keyboard taken inside of the tank, uh, the way that I described to you. Yeah, on the upper uh, left hand side. Now, the, the, the what's the bottom left, though? Because the upper left is the keyboard in the tank, but then you have the large distorted keys. And I had also the large keys that eventually I didn't use it. I, I also had large keys made and were trying to create this uh, explosion. But uh, as you'll see uh, in the uh, documentary uh, taken during this production, uh, it did not really uh, um, serve the purpose. So I ended up using the keys that were shot in the tank, the ones, the type that you see, the kind that you see on the upper um, left-hand side, and I simply distorted. There are so many little intricacies here. So, for example, the sheet music landing, the the way that the, the female dancer is holding the two ropes, the sheet music is, you know, bent like a sail, and that, of all the clouds, there's an open spot in the clouds so that the sheet music is not against the white of the clouds. Brilliant. Right. It's over the blue area of the clouds. Exactly. Again, perspective, everything here is spot on. You shoot this analog, you scan it in based on that, you know, photocopy kind of collage that you did. Yeah. How did you composite it? Well, eventually it was composed on computer. In what it, software? It, it, oh, this was done, you know, uh, before, uh, this was done on a uh, 
Second Graphics equipment, and uh, which is like uh, ancient technology compared to what's available right now. And uh, and as far as you know, positioning these things, they were just very consciously moved around and placed in the right place and sized the right you know uh, um, shape. And um, when I selected these particular images, I already had in mind that you know that I need like a piece of blue sky to place the um, sail against. Like all these things kind of came naturally, but they all uh, were selected. Uh, with purpose to, you know, to fill in certain part of the overall composition. So but but doing this on a, on a Silicon graphics machine. Yeah. And you didn't have masks, right? I mean, now we have masks, even, oh, even no, like masks, my first version masks. of Photoshop was version 2.5 and you didn't no, have layers even. Masks. So how did you always oh, mask? You had to make them, you know, you see, and I was really, uh, <laughs> very, very experienced when it came to making masks because when I was doing my uh, initial uh, composites in Darkroom, I uh, used uh, lithofilm, you know, high contrast film, uh, creating uh, masks that work exactly the same on the same principle as they work in Photoshop. That's why, you know, when I was introduced to Photoshop, everything came to me very naturally. I knew why these things are there. I mean, the method itself, uh, the, 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 the sort of like a uh, uh, physical aspect of this whole thing was, was different, but the principle, how to mask something off or how to make something semi-transparent or how to put one uh, form from another was a piece of cake for me because I've done it so many uh, times before in the darkroom. Right. So now that digital exists, do you ever still, you know, analog has made a resurgence. There's people out there that live and breathe right now shooting film. Do you still shoot film or only digital? Well, I don't, but I'm very happy that people do. I was absolutely appalled when most schools, you know, begin to drop their dark rooms, you know. I never forget when I got a call from a uh, friend of mine who used to run the uh, FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, and he said, listen, listen, Richard, uh, we're closing up our darkroom. Do you need any more equipment? So I ran over there and took whatever I felt that was good for me to have at the time. And I said, my God, why do you drop this thing? It gives you such a fantastic background and, and a method and, and also, um, I don't know how to really describe it in the words. You know, you sort of like have it in you. You feel it. A foundation. It was foundation, yes. A background. And uh, so uh, all these things, as I had said before, that I went through starting with studying fine art and, and going through traditional photography and learning how to process film, learning how to make prints, and then discovering, you know, uh, optics, how various uh, lenses uh, would, you know, accomplish the kind of uh, result that I was after. And uh, really utilizing this technology, this equipment, uh, the most optimal way to my needs, rather than uh, relying on, you know, and 
too many accidents or so some accidents have happened in my life and I drew the most out of them. I'm not against accident, I don't want you to misunderstand it, but I mean sort of like uh, letting things take over your head, your brain, your thinking, uh, the way now, you know, uh, mass producers of software uh, uh, make things easier and easier and easier for you, so you think less and less how these things work. You press one key now, and, and you have a perfect mask down around, you know, oh, yeah. uh, wavy hair, something that was a real pain before to, <laughs> to sort of uh, control. So uh, now things are much easier. So as they become easier, spend more times brewing and uh, thinking about what you're going to do before you do it. That's the only thing I can suggest. It's, that's the really key behind it, you know, the way I function, the way I work. I love that. So you're a Photoshop user in the end is still would be your software of choice today. Yes, yes, of course, I am on very good terms with with Adobe and they always supply me with the latest. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, I'm not happy uh, about these uh, constant changes, this uh, uh, replacement, replacing rather various uh, uh, techniques or various uh, filters or, or whatever they may be uh, that uh, force you to almost like learn how to uh, actually operate it. Right. So there's a lot of time wasted on relearning things, something that you knew very well. That's why, you know, I very frequently work with old uh, Photoshops until the time when I uh, understood, and this happened, I believe, earlier this year, where Creative uh, Cloud uh, people decided to sort of uh, forget older versions of Photoshops and they, they support them, and modern computers cannot even run them. Right. You know, so that that is also a problem that you're facing. Uh, Rather than having things made easier for you, they become more complicated because of the others, you know, who choose doing things the way they do. So let me get into the speed round. A couple of questions, like five questions. Answer them as fast as you want to. Uh, any advice for shooting, planning for composites or multiple shot images? Well, uh, try to... Uh, think about what you're going to do before you start shooting. Try to think how those images will blend together and shoot them according to a certain, you know, certain method. Okay. What's the biggest mistake you almost made or I guess did make? <laughs> when I opened my big mouth, when, you know, when I was introduced to computers, I thought that Everything could be done with a computer. And I uh, jumped into this assignment that I eventually uh, failed to produce because there was no method. There was no software written, you know. I mean, I had something in my mind and I figured out, well, you know, any any computer operator, once I tell him what I'm looking for, will be able to do it just like that. And eventually, you know, it was not as easy. It was very complicated. So be very careful. Uh, 
putting too much attention and and kind of uh, uh, letting uh, or rather hoping that things are going to be done for you. Okay. Being as how you came up in the traditional art media world and studied the masters in, in traditional painting, et cetera, what's your favorite composition rule or do you have one? Well, I mean, so-called Renaissance rule, Euclidus, you know, perspective, um, all these things are very much uh, part of our uh, uh, consciousness and, and our vision right now. And as I said, uh, you can learn absolutely everything starting great masters. Not, you know, starting uh, uh, what's uh, in right now, uh, the latest, uh, you know, uh, uh, pages from a color publication, you know, go to museum, look at the masters and see how they conceive, how they conceive a whole composition, and how they, how they use light and okay. perspective. Now I got to touch the music thing again, again, music photographer. Is there a musician that you didn't get to photograph that is still, you know, may not be able to because they may not be with us anymore but is there a musician that you didn't get to photograph that would have been on your bucket list yes there are two that i never forgive myself to miss <laughs> billy holiday Ooh, my beloved beloved singer and also charlie parker my beloved musician i missed them by a year or year and a half they were gone you know but other than that i try to you know experience every one of them. I, I remember being in this jazz club on East 47th Street, doesn't exist anymore, where I was sitting with my uncle and my aunt, and there were maybe five other people, and we were witnessing Ella Fitzgerald. Ooh. Ten customers, two of them drunk, making so much noise that Ella stopped singing, and he said, if you don't throw these bastards out the door, I'll just walk out of the stage but imagine to be able to actually see these people so close what year and would that have been this was um this was early 60s okay the billy holiday gets me because again people have said to me and it's kind of the same for every genre but people have said to me what makes a great music image and my answer is always the moment more than the technique more than anything it's the moment that tells the story. And I've seen video and photos of, of Billie Holiday, and I can only imagine how many moments there would have been to capture of that performance. Would have been absolutely amazing. So last question, is there a photographer that people may or may not know about that, but that more people should follow in your opinion? Well, I mean, uh, a number of idols, like recently, uh, Hero died, who was my beloved photographer. Uh, I love Irving Penn. Uh, I was lucky to uh, assist Avedon on many sessions, and uh, uh, I learned a great deal just observing him, not that... Uh, my work is any much uh, anyway like his but you know but he was such a genius in directing people and uh, 
knowing exactly what he was after. He was a master of a moment. You're talking about a moment as capturing a moment, you know, having okay. pen. I mean, the number number of people. So I will make sure that I put links to the three that, that Richard has just mentioned in the show notes here on YouTube or in the blog post over at BehindTheShot.tv. If I can't find them, I'll reach out to Richard to, to get spelling and everything so that we can find as much as we can about them. And if you want to, and again, I, I should actually add, if you want to find out any of Richard's links that we're about to go through, they're over at the website. It's BehindTheShot.tv. And find this particular episode. There's a little blurb that I wrote about Richard. There's all of his links. There's a small gallery of his work. But trust me, head over to his website, which is richardhorowitz.com. We'll spell it for you here in a second for those of you on the audio link. Uh, because, But when you go to his website, set some time aside. I sat here with my wife and lost an hour like that browsing through your gallery lost and then, my life you lost an hour <laughs> oh no no i was i didn't get to finish and then did that a couple more times like i spent an hour going through the music stuff went back later spent an hour going through the analog stuff you will lose track of time going through richard's galleries uh it is so worth it your website again richardhorowitz.com spell your first name so that people people know R like Robert, Y like York, S like Sam, Z like Zebra, A like Adam, I like Robert, D like David, Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z dot com. Perfect. Easy. Richard Horowitz Studio on Facebook, Richard Horowitz underscore studio on Instagram. And I don't even know, I'm trying to stress it. I don't know how to put in you the viewer or listener's mind how badly i want you to go look at his website it is his work is stunning absolutely stunning richard it is so wonderful to be able to talk to you i thank you for your time my friend this night thank you it was a pleasure and thank you for all the good words about me and my work i appreciate it there I'm not making them up. They are all true. <laughs> Everybody, go check out richardhorowitz.com. I'm going to spell it for you again. It's R-Y-S-Z-A-R-D, Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z, richardhorowitz.com. Again, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts in either a video format, if your you know, destination of choice supports video, like Apple Podcasts does support video, uh, or you can get it in an audio-only format and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can do it. You can find all the links to subscribe over at BehindTheShot.tv. You can find me at SteveBrazel.com. By the way, wherever you are getting this podcast, I have a favor to ask. If you would head over and leave a review, and one thing has come out recently I wanted to let you know about, excuse me, and that is people are in Apple Podcasts intending to leave a review for the podcast and instead actually are leaving a an app review. So please, if you would, make sure that you go leave a review for the video version in Apple Podcasts, the audio version in Apple Podcasts. It would be two separate reviews. Star rating if you like it. If you don't like it, 
go find a different podcast and and, and rate that one. Uh, <laughs> if you're on YouTube, head on down below the image. You'll find a subscribe button, a like button, and you can leave any comments that you want down there as well. And I've got a bunch of the show notes there uh, too. Uh, and that's pretty much it. You can reach out to me anywhere you want. By the way, if you want to hit me up on, you know, Instagram or Twitter, it's at Steve Brazel or at Behind the Shot TV. I thank all of you, as always, for the support, for watching. Make sure you join us next time as we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. We'll see you then. Thank you.